You are listening to the message by Antioch Centre for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. Hey Amen. I'm going to put the title of my message up right away and get into this. It's the service to the king. And uh, we start by reading Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now, in coordination with this passage, which in a moment we're going to dissect very carefully with a specific purpose, I also want to read Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and then Matthew 20, 28. It says, We who are strong ought to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus taught and demonstrated, of course, a life filled with benevolence toward others. Everything that Jesus did, he did for everyone else. He said he did not do his own will. He said, I only do the will of the Father who sent me. And his life was dedicated to that purpose. And the inferences of the passage in Matthew 25 that we first read are clearly seen as a need for us to be benevolent and for do the things written here and that they hold an eternal purpose in our doing. And so if we plan on spending eternity with God uh, and not be banished in the outer darkness, we're not going into the rest of this passage because you know it gets pretty scary later about the people who don't do these things and being rejected and they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and a very frightening passage, which I'm not afraid of frightening passages. I'm in, I invite them into my life because the Word of God can mold us. But I'm focusing on these things that are written in this in fact, uh, very simple things, because with this passage, or the passages we've seen in mind, I've, I've always felt that our lives should endeavor to fulfill the simplicity of what's written in God's Word. In other words, for us to evade the lake of fire. I mean, we know that we evade the lake of fire, we're saved because we believe in Jesus. We believe that He, he took our sins, our iniquity, He died, was buried, and rose again. Believing in our heart, we confess with our mouth, and that brings salvation. But there are things that go along with salvation. And the Bible speaks specifically, saying those things that accompany salvation. So salvation comes, but then there are certain things that God expects out of us. And uh, sometimes these messages are not the most popular, because a lot of believers these days want to hear that they don't have to do anything but sit back on the grace couch and chill and relax, and everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. But the fact is, we do have obligations and we do have responsibilities in the kingdom that are so important, they can jeopardize our eternal status. And of course, anyone who um, is into some doctrines or ideas, they might say, well, that's impossible. Nothing can do that. But I'm just going by, I'm just going to take the Bible 
at face value. And I know that later, this is the division of the sheep and the goats. And the goats he puts on one side, the sheep he puts on his right hand. And this is the message to the sheep. Well, how many of you consider yourself one of God's sheep? I, I believe that I am one of his little lambs. He's been, I mean, now that I'm past 50, maybe I have to be a sheep. But I still feel like a lamb in his arms often when he picks me up and he loves me in his presence. And he gives me so much grace, so much love. He's so kindly, is working in my heart all the time. And I appreciate him being my good shepherd. So we are this. And of course, a goat is the opposite of the sheep in the parable that he shares here. And the goat is the one that is obstinate, resistant, and does not comply with the wishes of the shepherd. They have to fight goats. I've seen goats. Uh, there's an expression in the United States when something is absolutely out of control. We call it a goat rodeo. You ever hear that expression? It's like a goat rodeo. It's a funny expression, but it's true. Because how, how in the world could you get goats to cooperate in a rodeo and do things. I, I have been with goats. They do not listen. But sheep do conform. They do listen to the shepherd. They line up. And maybe you've seen the movie Babe. That's one of my favorite movies. I love that movie because it shows you, in fact, just how those are real sheep in many cases when they're corralling them. Mary will be, you could never do that with goats, ever. And so what Jesus is telling us in this parable is that we are either going to be like sheep or we're going to be like goats. And the people who yield to Jesus, and just earlier in the Chinese church, I shared the message about Captain Jesus and how Peter was uh, in the boat the first time that Jesus encountered him to start the ministry and call them. He goes to the boat, and there's a very specific phrase where he approaches the boat in Luke chapter 5. And before getting into the boat, before taking control of that boat, it says in one translation, and Jesus prayed Peter that he might be able to get in his boat and push off of the shore a bit. And in the Greek, it's a very specific phrase. Only one time do we find Jesus speaking that way. And that is the first time, because it was not Jesus' boat. In fact, it was Peter's boat. And Peter was therefore the authority of the boat, and he was the captain. And that's where I referred to the fact that the you know, captain has great power over their boat. A captain has absolute authority on a boat. According to maritime law, a captain can arrest, imprison, or even shoot someone belligerently attacking his boat. They have authority, almost like a sovereign nation. They can marry people. So a captain is obviously an authority. So it is in the boat of our life. And the analogy is, was that was Peter's boat representing his life. And when Jesus first comes to us, he does not say, hey, you, I'm coming into your life, whether you like it or not. Give me that boat. No, he actually begs us. He wants to. He pleads with us. He gently comes by his spirit. And it's funny because in that passage in Luke chapter 5, yes, Peter says, yes, Lord, come. And they push out off on a bit from the shore so that Jesus could preach to the masses. When he'd finished speaking, he then turns to Peter and he says, hey, go out deeper. Into the, into the water and cast the nets. Now it switches to the imperative mode. Now he's commanding him. He's telling him what to do like he's a big shot. Who in the world does he think he is in that? But well, he's exactly what Peter let him be. In other words, Peter invited him into the boat. And the way I've always visualized it is that Peter had the captain's hat. But when Jesus came in, he took that captain's hat and he gave it to Jesus. And he said, you are now Captain Jesus, whatever you say. In fact, when he says to him, go out into the water, throw the nets down. Peter was not very comfortable with the request. 
because Peter had fished all night. In fact, he tells Jesus, look, you know, I've been fishing all night. There's no fish out there, but nevertheless, whatever you say, I'll do it. And Jesus says, okay, and then you know what happened. He put the net down, and there were so many fish, he broke his net. He had to call two other boats. They filled two boats so much full of fish that they were sinking. And God demonstrated that when he is in charge, miracles can happen. So it is a picture of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the difference between sheep and goats is just that. The sheep is someone who has accepted the lordship of Jesus. And I challenge people with that analogy also about Jesus being our captain, is there's a simple test you can take to know whether or not Jesus is truly the Lord of your life. When you pray and you believe you hear God's voice, how does it come to you? Does it come as a gentle request? Does he say to you, may I please do this in your life? Or does he come and say, hey, do this, do that? And whatever side of that you're on will determine whether you are truly under his lordship or not. Because there's a lot of believers, honestly, that are still listening to Jesus say, please. And the reason he says it is because they don't always comply with his wishes. So it's not a wholehearted deliverance of self into the hands of Christ. But the one, I mean, I know the way Jesus talks to me. He doesn't even explain things. He just says, go do that. Like, why? I don't know, but I've been fishing all night. Yeah, just go do it. So I've learned through obedience, just... Make him Lord, do whatever he says, because that's the boss, right? I mean, if you work on a job and you have a boss over you, how does your boss talk to you? Would you please, if you don't mind, maybe uh, type this for me, this letter, and can you prepare these docs? If you, look, look, just no, not pressure, though, just if you have a chance. No, boss doesn't talk like that. Boss could care less about what you feel or what you think in that moment. Do this, this, and this by 4 o'clock or you're fired. And he walks out the room and you have to hustle and make it happen. That's the boss's right. That also is how we'll know if the Lord Jesus is in fact the captain of our life. He will treat us like a boss and we are employees. That's a good place to be. Now he's a good boss. Don't get me wrong. He's not a tyrant. He will greatly lavishly reward you. As this parable goes on to say, the obedient sheep were given great rewards, inheritance, and wonderful things. It says, in fact, that uh, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I think of uh, the, the um, old Keith Green song, and the lyrics say, in six days you created everything. But you've been working on heaven for 2,000 years. In reference to, I go to prepare a place for you in John chapter 14. In my Father's house, there are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would tell you, but it's true. So he was going to prepare those. 2,000 years he's been working on your habitation, on your room in heaven. So it must be glorious. Even before the creation or since the creation of the world, he's been preparing an inheritance. So that's a great motivation to be sheep. So in mind of this, looking at this, I want us also to, to talk about some things concerning our vision. Our vision here is simple at Antioch. We state it as worship, family, and missions. And worship, to me, is the priority. That's why it's in first place. We first come, we humbly bow down, we submit ourselves to God. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We do that in worship and, and obeisance to Him where we tell Him He is Master. 
We let him know that we understand his role in our life. In fact, if you sing properly the songs that we do and you read and do, you will in fact come into the Lordship of Jesus Christ if you believe these lyrics. We're singing accordingly. These are not the songs of goats. These are the songs of sheep. They are sweet sounding and we give him that place and we honor him and we lift him up. So worship is very important in the depths of worship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the encounters we have, our entrance in to the Holy of Holies by way of the blood of the Lamb. All that we do in this church, we focus so much on that because we know if we can just get into the depths of the presence of God there in the kiln of the fiery furnace of heaven, we can be metamorphosized. He changes. Everything changes in his presence for me. I can have a headache. I can be depressed. I can be frustrated. I can be miserable. And one minute in the Holy of Holies, and I'm laughing at how foolish I am to have been so concerned. Isn't it true? How the perspective is so different from the inside of the king's chambers than from the outside. We're outside in the muddy valley fighting on our way to see the king. It's a whole different perspective. We can get frustrated. But once we gain entrance and we're there, we know there is nothing impossible for our God. Everything's fine. <sighs> we take a deep breath, a sigh of relief, climb up into the lap of the father who's our Abba or our daddy, and he just holds us, and we kick our little feet because the throne is so big we can't touch the floor, and we're just so happy there because what can touch us in that moment? Nothing. And so that's where we, that's what we do in worship here. We go deep. Um, we, we teach other people to do the same. We train them how to enter in. We teach the kind of worship that doesn't require a worship team. Uh, I can lead worship without the instruments. I love the instruments and I like doing it, but I can lead worship just with words of praise. We often do it. Sometimes when we pray, we go deeper into the presence of God before we ever play a note because it has more to do with the articulation of the heart. If it's expressed in sincerity, then that resonates with God causes the very dew of heaven to descend upon us. Worship. And I love teaching worship. Right now, uh, uh, right now there's in the makes, and I'll let you know as it comes, uh, the conference we're going to have in Uganda, specifically focused on deep worship. It's going to be a very personal thing, probably not in the big church. Those of you who have been to Uganda with me, more likely it will be in Mary's house, in Sikaran's house, like in that big room they have in their living room. And we will bring people in, uh, worship leaders as well as other people, intercessors and prayer people, and uh, just, just me and a keyboard. And uh, just worship the Lord there and go into the deepest place of worship. I love worship. I love teaching worship. I love being bringing people into worship. Our second priority here is family. That the stability of our family, the growth of our homes. I just recently did biblical family life. It is online. Those are watching online right now, quite a few of you. You can go onto our YouTube site, Antioch Center for the Nations YouTube channel, and there is the entire series. I don't know how many hours we spanned in it. We did it like in eight hours, nine hours, something like that, you know, more or less. And so you can go there and go through biblical family life because that is a priority. My wife and I just celebrated our 34th wedding anniversary, going for 35 years. And I'm thinking, wow, what's our 70th anniversary going to be like? Won't that be amazing? And we have three beautiful children and uh, beautiful grandchildren. And God is our priority in our home. And we live it by the word of God. And so we work on our families here in this church. That is one of our greatest priorities. 
We do that after worship, because first go to God, we bring our families to God, and then we start to work out, take responsibility for our issues. Then the next is missions. Now, heretofore, missions frequently has been as a foreign idea. In fact, when I say mission, you always think the foreign field. And we're good at that. And because I'm a professional missionary, basically I've been doing this for more than three decades. This is what I do. I can easily go to other nations, do that, do this, go to this place, to that place. Right now we're doing things in Bali. We're very excited about Quentin and Harni say hello. They watch these uh, messages. And so we greet you also. We're praying for them all the time. And it was so wonderful when we were there that Last night we prayed, the Spirit of the Lord consumed Harni, and I got a message back this week also from uh, Quentin and said since that night of prayer, uh, they, cannot, they cannot stop experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. They said every day the Holy Spirit is visiting them and visiting them. He, as he's writing, he says, as I write this, tears are rolling down my cheeks. Just a beautiful uh, message to hear that they're encouraged. So that's our missionaries out on the mission field being blessed. We have missionaries, of course, as everyone knows, in Germany. We have the Cartellis. Uh, we have uh, Tim and Sassi Jordan. We have uh, um, people all over. We pray for them, we hope, and my own sons in Japan, on and on, as well as other associate missionaries have come and gone through the years. And that's always been my focus. But lately, God has been turning my heart around because I, as a missionary, I'm programmed to do missions on the mission field. But in my case, I, I've been a bit negligent of our local missions. And there's some reasons why I've been negligent, honestly. And I sought my heart and I was challenged by one of the church members because Singapore is honestly a very successful nation. And even as this past week, I visited, uh, Valerie and I went and we visited several different uh, places and connected with people concerning some missions that we're starting to try to uh, bring together here in local realms. And we went to a senior citizen, of course, and talked at length. And the man explained very clearly how the needs of the people are met. In fact, the needs are so met that you can go to people's homes and they have excess food. These are people that are marginalized that do not have, provided they're connected to the system. And that's when I found out, well, there are marginalized people that are not eligible for all the help and are a little more on the fringe and are going through hard times and difficulties. So we contacted a group and I can mention their name because they're such sweet, great people, Ray of Hope. And we went and volunteered to work with them in Yishun. Uh, this was uh, yesterday. I had a wonderful time. Uh, I was a bit out of place. Every, I was dressed kind of like I'm dressed now. And everyone had their little uniform T-shirts on with the name of, you know, Ray of Hope. There were maybe, I don't know, maybe 60 volunteers. And I went kind of just to look and see how they're doing what they're doing because I want us to have projects like that. And so that was my idea. But in that moment that I was there, they put me to work, which I was there to do. And my job became delivery man for those that could not come down by filling the basket. Uh, actually, we just kind of borrowed some Shangshong baskets and used those. Don't worry, we returned them. But we put all the goods down the line. They set up a makeshift fair price, if you would, in this void deck. I mean, just 
thousands of dollars worth of goods. It was uh, all from donations. Amazing. But we filled the baskets and we rolled the baskets up to the units and bring it to the people that could not get out. And I was so amazed at the things that happened in those moments. Uh, they did not know me. They knew who I was or what I was. But as soon as they saw me, they just started telling me about their life. Everything. All their problems, all their issues with tears in their eyes. Then I would have to, after the fact, say, well, you know, actually I'm a pastor. Oh, really? So it's kind of fun because usually it's the other way around. Usually I'm like, I'm a pastor, hallelujah, and I would like to pray for you. This was just, they were responding by the kindness of this group, Ray of Hope. I was a delivery boy. But it afforded me opportunity to connect with so many people, of which we have names and numbers. Two hospital vi visits pending this week we're going to go in that came out of that, of people in severe problems. And so God is showing me a really cool thing that I can do. We will, instead of reinventing the wheel, I want to dovetail into such projects. Just volunteer. Go and do that. And as those doors open up, I will follow up in those relationships and take care of those people the best I can and meet their needs. And that's a very local thing that God has been showing us. But I think it's important also to define our local missions in detail and take practical steps to fulfilling the ultimate purpose of the church. So what I propose to do tonight as we go into this, we're going to see five categories of local missions. Recently, my wife has been uh, gathering vegetables. She's part of a group that rescues vegetables. That sounds funny, like the vegetables are drowning. But, you know, they are vegetables that are disposed of from clean sources. And it's really a shame because they're still good. But when new produce arrives, you know how it works in the food business. Uh, they just get rid of that stuff. Well, she has a group. They rescue that, and then they redistribute to people that have needs, which we also are going to be doing. And that was why I went to see this, because we can learn that. But um, as we have that, we already have, my wife has already set up for us to gain these resources for us to be able to distribute those things. So in small scale, we can do that and also find people that we're looking for, we basically want to set up like uh, a file of cases of people. And so we'll have administratively here a file on every person that we encounter and help keep good records. So that way as team members, we all can take turns ministering to those needs. And those are willing, we'll send you on mission. It won't be all the time, but maybe that day you can go and make that delivery. And they can meet you and you can talk with them and pray with them. And it'll be fun when we put it all together. So I want to talk about this, though. This is a priority when we start to do local missions. Uh, the church is a group of people, of those that are called out of darkness into God's light of the gospel, right? That's ecclesia. So we are God's people called together. But we are called with a purpose. Uh, Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead. And that's what we believe. But our next mission, it says, go and wait for the promise of the Father. It says, when you receive the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will become witnesses. So the witness is the one that goes and takes the euagelion, or the gospel, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, takes that message. That's the message. We take that to people. Now, as we do benevolence, this must be the priority. And this is where churches can get out of balance. Everything that we do must be a means to one single end. And that end is the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can do many things. I think you've 
heard my story about disaster relief, where I spent many, many weeks not preaching, but meeting the needs. Because there's a time to preach and there's a time just to meet needs. But that builds relationships. And so that also is our goal. But we're that church, the message of the gospel, uh, some analogies the Lord gave me in prayer this morning. It's, it's like a train full of blessings. The gospel itself, the story of Jesus, and a life lived with Jesus. It's, it's like a cargo train filled with treasures and blessings. But if you don't have a track to put it on, if you don't have some program or some direction in which the gospel can travel on to reach, especially in a place like this. And honestly, uh, outside of Singapore, it's a little different. I basically could stand on any corner in many third world countries and just hold up a bucket of rice and people will come and I can share the gospel with them. And you can just crank up things like that. It's not quite the same here. Things work differently. There are laws, there are restrictions, and I'm fine with that. But we have to understand now, I'm tasked as a pastor and a leader here, how can I get the gospel, the real blessing, to these people? People that are in the nooks and the crannies of Singapore that you may never see and never know. Just the last few days, and I've been like Block 26 here in, uh, in Bishan, that's one of the famous poor areas. And uh, I also found out this past week that likely Block 26 is going to be demolished and they're going to move them all over to Block 410, which would be uh, great because it's a brand new, beautiful facility. And it is only one quarter filled right now. Just found, We went and investigated that block and looked at it. But um, those people moved over there I, to reach those people that I have met in different places, but with regularity. And what's ideal about these programs that I've been talking about is they have these kind of distribution programs uh, in several places. They only happen once a month in a given place, but then they do them often with different teams. Well, I would be keen to volunteer for every time they do it because it gives me the opportunity, as I said, to connect and do these things. And, of course, we all can, can, can do that. But the point is that is the train track. That kind of uh, activity. Uh, there are other train tracks, and these are these five categories. There's other paths that we can take for the gospel to make it where it needs to be and for us to please our master. So we're tasked with finding or building the rail system upon which God can travel. Uh, Barbara, my wife, does many things. We have through the years, and honestly, I'm going to share stories uh, tonight and a little bit about some of the things we've done through the years, but right now, the newest thing she's doing is libraries, and she gets the books together, and she goes and brings them in. She facilitates whatever. If there has to be something built, she'll build it. If there's already a standing structure, she can put shelves and put the books there, and it creates reading programs. Why? Because we want the little kids to read. Of course we want the little kids to read, but as a means to a further end. So I'm being real honest. We want the little kids to come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want the Cambodians to know Jesus. We want the church of Jesus to grow and flourish there. So one of the train tracks we have is exactly that program that she uses to be able to get in there and do that. Other train tracks that she has done there in Cambodia were restaurants. She had Alma and she had It's a Wrap and uh, these different things where these were mechanisms to connect to community and touch people and have them come and even be employed, do these things. And so we're looking at all kinds of exciting future projects too. Uh, part of the vision there in Bali also is that, to create a train track there.
for rehabilitation home for women and even be employed in businesses that we will put in place so that they will have income and not just say, hey, you need to leave that lifestyle and not offer them an alternative. But say, you can leave that lifestyle and get this job and be a part, get away from those that are extorting you and, and using you as a commodity or selling you, in the case of those that are sex trafficked and such, or um, there are also many uh, mothers without fathers or without men, and there's lots of needs there also. But in this message, we see these five categories, and really I want to say that this, at the core of all this, I'll tell you the fuel of the train. You can have the tracks, you can have the train, but if you don't have empathy and compassion, it doesn't work. So really the catalyst for all this to be done is compassion. Now, compassion does not function without sight, I have found. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Jesus was moved with compassion when he looked on the multitudes and saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, spread abroad and scattered. Something that happens when you see, when you become aware of needs. And just, it happens to me all the time. As I said, just yesterday in eight units that we went and delivered into, every one of those units, great need. And I, I cried with them about these issues, these problems. People, two of them were in comas. The, the people who are the ones that are the, the father figures of those homes. It's because it's dire needs. So I'm eager to go and, and see what we can do to help them. But empathy is the main theme of all of these categories. And all of these must be done out of compassion. But let's just say, I'm not very empathetic, not very compassionate. Let's just say you just dry run this. And you do it because you're afraid to go on the hell. You know what? There's nothing wrong with that. Honestly, because that is just sheer, blind obedience to the Word of God. I have often, honestly, done things I did not feel until in the doing the feelings came. So sometimes it's not like we operate out of a burden, but we operate out of conviction because we read the Bible and say, I have to do something. And you start to feel like something has to be done. That's fine. Respond to that. And later as you connect you'll begin to see. That's why when I train missionaries and send them to nations, I don't want them to make the big choices until they've gone and seen. I send them on scouting trips first so they can go and see. And it's very exciting when they do so. Exciting like the Cuban girl I talked about who came and saw. She was there in Bali looking, looking to become a missionary and then bring a group of Cubans from Cuba, which is very hard to do. They can bring them in. And I saw myself in a vision training them Bahasa Indonesia from, directly from Spanish. So we can bypass English entirely. Because of my fluency in Spanish and my ability to speak Bahasa Indonesia, I can teach them directly. So I'm so excited about that. Isn't that an odd amalgam of things in ministry? A foreign American missionary that spent 10 years in Mexico teaching Spanish to, uh, in Spanish, Bahasa Indonesia to Cubans in Bali. That's just like totally mixed up. But it's beautiful because only God could do something like that. And when I told the girl that I will do this for her, the Cuban girl, she cried and she cried and she said, and I quote, you're the one we saw. You're the one we prayed about. So actually in prayer, the Lord had told them they were going to meet me. 
So that makes it even more exciting uh, for me to experience and know. So these categories of missions that we see, we start with the first one. At first he said there, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I put these together, food and drink, because this is just sustenance. Uh, it's not common that you find starving people here in Singapore. There are people who are malnourished, however. They're not eating the proper food. In other countries, of course, to provide this, we can go to other nations. And we've been doing that. We do that in Mexico, India, Indonesia, all over. We've, we've been doing this. But we're talking locally. Because Jesus clearly says that when he was hungry and thirsty, the sheep fed or sustained him with food and drink. Because everything that happens, it, it, it helps us to get this mindset about this passage. In fact, every time we feed and give something to nourish someone in need, we're doing that to Jesus the King. He takes it personally. And the reason why this is important that you have this mindset is, in my experience through these years, I have found that many harsh acts on the part of the people you're trying to help. Sometimes entitlement, demanding. When we do programs, I've seen through the years, uh, you see that. Even greed will arise. But these things are free. These are gifts. It's charity. But I've seen, I've had to break up fights many times in feeding programs and all these different things because the people were desperate. But it's important that we not think when we do this the proper way to keep your mind straight in operating in fulfillment of Matthew chapter 25 is to know that every individual you do anything for, whatever you do to the least of those, you do to him. And so I superimpose Jesus on everybody that I help. And if I see Jesus, then I'm so happy to provide and take care of that individual because I know that it's Jesus that I'm loving. Think of Galatians chapter 6 verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good. We know this passage. Why would you be weary in doing good? Because sometimes when you do good, you have negative results. Ever bless somebody and regret it later? Because they just were either ungrateful or even combative or abusive. I see it all the time. And if I did any form of benevolence to people because of the way they treat me, I would have quit three decades ago. But I don't do it for that. I do it for the Lord Jesus. I do it because it's a mandate in the Word of God, and I know that I'm storing treasure in heaven if I do it. And if we picture Jesus being the one that's receiving it, it makes sense. Don't go weary in well-doing. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And that's true, that we do take care of the needs of our own people. We take care of the needs of the people of the church. Uh, if there are needs, we will meet those needs to the best of our ability, and the overflow will go to all else that we can reach and help. But it's it's usually that the Bible says that the righteous are not forsaken, nor the seed of God out begging for bread. I find people that are covenant people really don't have hunger like that. Not in this nation. Sure, I can go to other nations where there is famine. And whether you're a believer or not, you may suffer famine. As Paul said, he did at times in, in hunger. He labored. 
But it, it's like a job, really. All benevolence that we do for Christ, it's like a job, but the wages are eternal. Uh, if we work hard here on earth in natural realms to fulfill this passage, to earn a salary, in, in regular life we do that. We work in a company, or you work a job, and you get paid, and you're willing to do whatever, even if you don't want to do it. I mean, I'm sure a job is not you doing what you want to do all the time. A job is doing things you don't want to do because they're going to pay you for it. So it's worth it, whatever. Even when you feel like walking out, you will do the job because there's compensation. Well, that's exactly how we are motivated to do the benevolent works of Christ. Because we know that we're getting paid for it. And that's a very important priority. So benevolence is an eternal job with an eternal paycheck. Because you may do good to people, and that's why it's so easy to grow weary, according to Galatians. You may do good to people all the time, but find, wow. Believe me, I, I speak as a pastor in churches, a pastor all these years, and if, you're, if you are remaining faithful because of the fidelity of the congregation, you will quit soon. Because it's never going to be there. You do it for Christ, and the people are rewarded and grow. So if we visualize the payment, and by faith accept the words that Jesus is speaking to us here as truth, then we're going to find an enthusiasm to continue for the sake of Christ in his kingdom. I remember as a 17-year-old, I got, I got saved in New Orleans. And um, one of my mentors was a very real guy. In fact, he taught me realism versus religion. Like I learned religion. I learned how to pray. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise God. You know, a lot of that kind of uh, a plastic sort of Christianity. And this man was my realism mentor. I already, I already told you many times I, have, I had several major mentors. And this particular one, he was the one that broke me down and made me real. He's the one that challenged my pretense, my false religious ideas. And he was a great man. And I remember we worked together. It was the first experience I had with a feeding program. I'm speaking now about sustenance. And in the city of New Orleans where I was saved, there is a lot of poverty, a lot of homeless. And so we had meals. We would set up meals on a certain night and invite all the neighborhood um, people who were down on their luck or that were drug addicts or uh, drunks in this case. And my friend nicknamed it the Wino Banquet. And it stuck in my head. I could never get rid of that. And I remember one time accidentally saying it in front of the pastor and got rebuked by the pastor. I said, yeah, oh yeah, I was working in the wino banquet. The wino banquet? It's not a wino banquet. It's to reach the lost. Praise God. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. I still worked it, but to me it was the wino banquet. And it was so funny because I went in there so fired up. It was my first time. Hey, remember the first time you were involved in some kind of real outreach to drug addicts and like these people that you know and you're nervous and scared you're they're going to pull a knife out and stab you what's going to happen and so this was an adventure to me i just got saved like a few months before this and i'm sitting there at the table and i sit next to this young Afri african-american boy he's uh, in his uh, teens not not much different than my age maybe by a couple of years and i give him the food and he's eating and i'm talking i says is it okay if i talk to you for a while? He's like, yeah. He's, like, mm -hmm. He's eating. So I tell him my testimony, everything about my life and what Jesus did for me and how he rescued me. And he's listening, shaking his head and eating, listening, shaking his head. And it was a moment that I stopped 
And I said, and, and what do you feel about this? Would you like to receive the Lord Jesus Christ tonight? And he looked at me. He said, you play basketball? That was his response. What? Do I play basketball? And it taught me something. Uh, you can preach all you want. Sometimes people aren't going to respond the way you expect them to respond. And my first thought was, young man, I'm talking about eternity here, not basketball. But of course, I didn't do that. I caught myself and I thought, you know what? I, yeah, I messed around basketball. While you like basketball, I switched and learned. Of course, I had a lot to learn in, the, in that. But that could be a great setback. And a lot of people in their first experiences working in such programs, they feel that. And after that, wow, all the programs that we've worked in through the years, I did several in, in my home city. Then we moved to Mexico. And on the mission field, I cut my teeth, so to speak, in slums. Nuevo Manecer. Uh, it's, it's a total slum area. This area called Topo Chico. We went and worked my first consistent meeting that I was doing was in this old woman's house. This woman had one tooth, just one tooth, and it moved a lot. And she smoked a big ball of stuff. It wasn't like a cigar or anything. It was just like some burning rubbish or something that she sucked on and blew the smoke in your face and talked to you. And uh, I'm talking about challenges to your benevolence. And how sometimes people are not going to be what you think. But I went and I, I went. I would go all the time. And she would make me some tea or co coffee. And we would sit and talk. And she'd go on and on and on. And all the little kids from the neighborhood would come. A lot of them were deformed. Because that particular neighborhood had a very high rate of incest. And so there were a lot of kids that were deformed and shrunk limbs. And uh, it was really just... A baptizing of fire for me in missions. That's the first place they put me. And I thank God for that experience. Because after that, it was easy for me to go to any slum and work in any of those programs where we even lived. My wife and I lived in slums for 20 years of our life in those poor areas where we could minister and care for those people. And after a while, it gets very easy to do that. And so it's important. Uh, my wife, in, in the area of sustenance, because that we're, t we're talking about, um, we'll go back to sustenance. Uh, this is, I was hungry, you gave me something, you gave me this. It's such, this is probably one of the biggest train tracks, as we called it analogously earlier, for the gospel. Because everybody likes to eat. And we had this thing, one of the most successful programs we did through the years was in a town called El Coloso. It's the one I often talk about that right now has been um, judged as the fourth most dangerous neighborhood in the world. And we lived there for seven years in that neighborhood. And fourth most dangerous, it has primarily to do with assassinations because of the drug cartel, because this is southern Mexico. When we were there, 65,000 people lived within a square mile. The percentage of Christians was somewhere around 2 to 3%, very low, of evangelical Christians. And there were no churches to be seen at all. And so we planted ourselves there, or better said, God planted us there. We just were the seeds that died. We didn't do it voluntarily. As I said earlier, when Jesus has the captain hat on, you do. But my wife and I, when we saw the place, we said, no, we can't live here. And the Holy Spirit spoke to us and said, this is your home. And because we were crying. At first, my wife was crying. And I, honey, I told her, honey, I promise you, I will never make you live in this squalor.
And the place we're looking at it, it was used as a latrine. There's fecal matter and urine in it. All the glasses are broken out. The door is a jar. I mean, there's a man stealing the, the toilet. There's, I mean, it's just as I'm serious. I, you can't make this stuff up. We're in, in there, and I said, and we were out, we were in the very last bit of our money, and, and we're supposed to live in this place, and my wife just couldn't handle it. She's, and she's tough. You know my wife. You know how bad this place had to be. And I said, honey, look, no, don't worry. We'll find another place. You're not going to have to live here. And God spoke and said, welcome to your new home. I heard it. And then I started crying. <laughs> and I hugged my wife and we cried together. Seven years later, uh, all the neighborhood kids come to Christ in that house. All the neighbors got saved. Church built, growing, leaders trained, and we left for India to start it all over again. But it was a great experience in feeding. Now, one of the things that we did, and my wife came up with this idea. She said, let's open restaurants. But, and in fact, we'd seen a program like this in another neighboring city of Oaxaca with some friends of ours. And they were doing it to reach out to migrant indigenous peoples that were going in and out of the city for harvest. And these people speak, in Mexico, there's 215 languages, these tribes. And they were going in, so they had this feeding thing where they could come, they were poor, they were trying to get from the city to the villages to do the harvesting, and they would feed them. And we liked the model of it. So we took that idea and we went back and my wife said, but I want to do it really nice. I want to do it exactly like a restaurant. She said, in fact, I want it to be a restaurant. And as far as anyone is concerned, it is a restaurant. So we did it. We designed Cafe, the first one, like a restaurant. We had the tables and the chairs and the tablecloths and plates and glasses and you know, the flower in the middle. And there was a bar behind and we had prepared foods that we would bring because we would do this for a period of hours, twice a week, and eventually three, three times a week later, right? I think if you're listening. And uh, we started slow, then we got, we did more and more. Speaking of food, it's what my wife is doing right now. But so we would had three teams of people the way we organize it. The first team were the inviters. And we printed out, because Mexicans don't throw something away if it's cute. Like, it, if it's paper, they might throw it away. But Mexicans like cute little things. So we laminated these little bookmarks and braided a little tassel of yarn on the bottom so it looked nice. So they wouldn't throw it away. Well, on the front was the, the restaurant information about a free meal. It was basically a coupon for a free meal. Well, on the reverse of it was a challenge and the prayer of salvation. So we would go out in the streets with these, and the first team would invite people to try the food at the restaurant. We have a special promotion today, and if you go to the restaurant, this is if you take this and show uh, the, the host there that you will get a free meal, absolutely no charge. We want you to try the food at the restaurant. Of course, many people in that environment, they were not very wealthy. It was great, free food. So they would go and come in there. The second team were the waiters and waitresses. They would have the people come in, they would sit them down and say, welcome, thank you, okay, I see you have one for you, one for you, okay, this, is, this entitles you to the special of the day. We would call it the special of the day, but it was only one thing. They didn't know that, because we had a menu, but there was nothing available on the menu, because it wasn't really a legitimate restaurant, you understand. It was a ruse, it was a train track. 
for us to get the gospel to these people. So they would come and back back behind the bar, my wife had the ideas, look, they need to make it needs to sound like food's being prepared back there. So she literally had three or four pots with spoons in it that people would just rattle around. Ching ting ting ting. We'd move glasses and stuff around. Because the food was already prepared. And they were just, it was in like coolers keeping hot rice and beans and stuff. So we'd put it all out, put the plates on the table. And before that, though, we'd say, okay, okay, one free meal for you, one free, okay, that's coming right up. Immediately, we'd get them some lime water. We'd make water with lime and sugar, and it was quite tasty. Agua de limón, they call it in Mexico. Put it down there and say, well, while you're waiting, um, this person's going to sit, tell you a little bit about our restaurant and how it's connected to some social works that we do. Well, then I would say in front of the people, two please for table four. And so then that's when they would start banging around the pots and stuff back there. Cling, 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 ching, boom. But they would not bring food until the other team member would give them the signal that either those people did not want to receive Jesus or had already received Jesus. So the counselor would sit down. Oh, yeah, we're part of a church, actually. We started this restaurant and uh, we've been... Uh, wanting people to try the food. And do you guys go to a church? You know, they actually got, when they first started, they were horrible evangelists. And they didn't know how to do it. But baptism by fire, again, is how we did. We just, I would, they would be water pourers. And then they'd never know when suddenly I would grab them by the arm and in front of the guests say, they're going to explain a little bit about what we do and what we're all about. And I would sit them down and they'd be shaking. But it would come out. And not one of them ever backed out. Because once it came out of their mouth, the boldness of the Lord Jesus rose. And they, could, they, they found that we're all preachers. We turned them all into evangelists. Because once you get the high of that moment, when the gospel goes to someone, it's like heroin. You're hooked. You can't stop once it starts coming out. So that's how we did that. And that, that was, it was so much fun. We opened a second one. Other people in our church opened a third one. So we had three of them working three times a week in different parts of this community of 65,000 people. Besides going door to door. And I knocked on the homes of 65,000 inhabitants myself. I had maps from the government and tracked it all. And honestly, that was not very effective. And honestly, it's door-to-door is not always effective. You have to have a connection. You can't just cold call people because they feel invaded. They feel targeted. That's why ideally the sustenance of food being delivered to homes like yesterday that Valerie and I did. It's great because, oh, thank you so much. Now, the irony of that wasn't my program, but everybody was thanking me for it. Why? Because I'm the big Angmo, you know, I'm the big white guy out there. Thank you so much, sir, for doing No, 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 it's not my program. Thank you. It's not mine. It's called Ray of Hope. I'm just here visiting. But we appreciate all you're doing for the community. It's not me. I, like, I couldn't deny it. I was trying to tell It's not. I'm not doing it. Several people thank me, but I did tell them, no, it's not me. It's Ray of Hope. It's a great group. They're doing a great job. And But I'm happy to go and help. That is the first uh, of these realms. Let's go to the next one which is hospitality. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And this is a little more complicated, uh, because I've done it. Not just like somebody you know, but I, we've taken street people in. And that's where it gets rough, uh, because they stink. Um, uh, they sometimes have no bowel control because of certain problems. 
or drug addiction or whatever and you meet them sometimes they are still into the illicit practices you can inadvertently have an active drug dealer living in your house I mean there's all kinds of things that can go wrong so you have to really have God's wisdom and we've had some characters come and go and I found out that the best way to do this is to have a secondary house dedicated to that purpose. It is my dream here in Singapore to have a temporary place where we can put people so that as a church we can be hospitable like that. Also, for missionaries that are coming, many missionaries come to Singapore for visa renewal because they're operating in different fields and it's the closest place to fly and often a cheaper ticket. So they come, and it's hard sometimes where we're going to put them. And all of us, uh, I know um, George and Valerie have taken some of our missionaries in. It's been such a kind gesture toward them. But there's a price to pay. I'm not talking about finances. I'm talking about the stress of people in your home. It's always a sacrifice. You know, the best day of a visitor in your home is the day they leave. You know that feeling when they finally, bye, oh, we love you, we're going to miss you, and you close the door, whew, ah, whew, and you feel like you're free, you're dancing around your house. Are they gone? Like, we have guests, and my daughter comes out after they go away, that she's like, did they leave? Yeah, they're like, oh, okay, and we're like, happy. Well, that's part of the stress of hospitality. But it's, we're doing that to Jesus. You're taking Jesus into your house. He's there for a while. You're meeting his needs and providing for him. And it's a great experience. But this is a harder one. And I have testimonies about this, but unfortunately most of them are negative. And um, that's why I think it's a good idea uh, to have a secondary facility. And I do believe that we can eventually have that. Now let's go to the next one, clothing. Because Jesus said, I needed clothes and you clothe me. Well, this is a good thing to do, but there's not a lot of naked people on the streets of Singapore. So uh, it's not like they absolutely need clothes. They do. You can provide clothes. You can make these things happen, but the needs are not quite as high. In alternate countries, yes. But remember, we're focusing on local emissions. Now, as I'm sharing all this, too, I'm sharing it with the church and people also. If you have ideas when you're online, you can share uh, Sylvia said amen to the comment about people in your house. But anyway, the, when, when you can find people that have needs in clothing, well, great. Uh, in other countries, that's easy. I can go to slums right there in Batam. I can take a boat, and there's lots of needs, and I can bring all the clothes over there. You will never run out of places to do that. But Singapore, how can we connect that way? How can we do that? I mean, I know my experiences with that, I think, the biggest project we ever did was after Hurricane Paulina. There were over 800 displaced people in our neighborhood, and they were in refugee camps. Most of them, if not all of them, were living on mountainsides. So the mudslides destroyed their homes. And also, many of them were caught in the mud, and when the mud rolled over them, it tore their clothes off, believe it or not, because it was thick water with mud. And the force of it, if you ever stick your hand in liquid concrete, you'll, you'll know what it's like when a mudslide takes place. That's why it also kills so many people, because the gravity of it will just suck people in. So these people barely survive hanging on the trees. And uh, when, I, when we received them out of the streets, when they were coming out of the mountains, they didn't have any clothes on. 
They, or they had like just the top on the pants were ripped off. It was really such a shame. And everything, we gave every extra article of clothing we had away. We gave everything away within the first like 24 hours. We took all of our towels. We wrapped people up. We did everything. So we had a need for that. And some people in the United States got a big truck. And they absolutely filled it with clothes. We're talking about a huge truck and drove it all the way down. Back then it was a 24-hour drive just from the border of the United States to where we were living. Brought it all the way down. It took us days to sort this. When we put it in the church, our church was a little bigger than this at that time, the one we were using as the distribution center. And the pile of clothes, I remember it was fun because the pile of clothes, you could climb on top of it and, and be on the ceiling. Because it was that high, as high as that aircon, huge pile of clothes, and we had to sort it all out into sizes and male, female, you know, child, girl, baby, blah blah blah. And we did it all. We sorted it all out on tables, and then when we announced we were going to, we had a queue that went for for kilometers. It was like wrapped around blocks. And we processed the people through and did it. And it was a great experience, and it connected us to the community in such a way that we would have never been able to connect. And um, we also, of course, fed people during that time. But the clothing thing was one of the funnest things we did. And I remember my church people, uh, they also wanted clothes. And in these clothes were some nice things. So a lot of them were like putting clothes to the side, like for themselves. And I had to keep control of that. It's like, what is that? Well, this seems really nice. I don't know if I maybe could. Well, let's just see. Put it to the side for now. And um, if, if it works out. And, of course, I let them have some things. But I was real careful. But it does say, do good to all people, especially to those of the household of God. So I did take care of the people in the church. But they didn't have any needs because God preserved them in the storm. Not one church member, nor one Christian lost any properties or any home because of God's divine protection. Uh, another one is consolation. I was ill, and you looked after me. Well, there's different categories of illness. We know that there is physical illness, of course. There are people who are no longer able to move, uh, that they need help even getting back and forth to a bathroom. There are people, And there are actually people alone in homes here in Singapore like that. And so that's one of my main, this, this area I think we are going to be able to do easily. Find cases of people who have these needs and that will need regular visits from us. And as we find them, uh, we're going to search them out. And as we do, if you're interested in helping with that part of Antioch, it'd be better that we distribute it amongst us all. You just make like one trip a week and then we all take turns depending on how much. But um, one, time, one thing I learned a long time ago when working in these programs is to try not to bite off more than you can chew. So we'll take some cases. And as I say, Val, you weren't in the room when I said this. I want, I want uh, files on each case of person about what we've done how much, this, that, everything. So that way we have records of the people that we're helping and we know. That way we will also uh, be able to, to, as we learn, we'll be able to handle a greater load of people, especially when it comes to sickness, disease. Um, just now, Caleb went uh, back 
to the um, you went actually to Glen Eagles because years ago we worked there we would go and pray for those on dialysis and those in chemotherapy there and there was an open door and there's a woman there right that has that ministry Caleb's hooked back up with her and we're going to put that in motion too and have a regular time and if you would like to go with us to do that you can actually go and physically pray for people that are going through chemotherapy and going through dialysis and going there and that some of them are in the end of their life and they just need somebody to care some of them are in the end of their life and they don't have many people that care for them they're just kind of fading out such a such a sad thing and of course you have to have the constitution to be able to go with love and compassion and the gospel is the key again. If in that moment you make sure the gospel is your motive, you will not be oppressed. You will not feel sick from it. You will feel joyous from having been there. Like I never forget the man in the hospital that that was the last day of his life. And he, when I told him, you, you have to believe in Jesus, I told him. He just got telling me how he, he didn't think he could be saved because he was a bad guy. When I said, you have to believe, I said, do you believe in Jesus? He sat up in his bed in the ICU, grabbed my arm, and he says, I believe. And I said, it was like a Hollywood movie, you know, like, ah. And he got saved right there on the spot. He died like the next day. But right, wow, what an honor. The last moment before they go on to eternity, in those cases, convalescent people or people who in those situations, you have that moment to snatch them out of the flames of hell right before they go on. So that's physical. There's mental illness also. There are, in this category, we may, I don't always think of, let's say, autistic or Down syndrome or this particular categories, but I love those children and I love interacting with them and uh, we're seeking opportunities to connect with groups that do that where we can volunteer and if you know if anybody here you hear this and you say hey i know a group that's well then let's pool our resources of knowledge so that we can have these avenues but we want to schedule like on the calendar where every day if you want to do something to fulfill matthew chapter 25 there's going to be some place that we can send you or that you can accompany us to and there's mental problems. Uh, then there's illness that is moral illness. You can think of some people out there that are just, just their life of sin has brought them to a place that they are, you know, I would put that into uh, drug addiction or alcoholism. That's a moral thing. That's not really a mental sick. That's a choice. People are choosing to do that. And so, but they need help. They need help, need someone to encourage them and help them and, and get them the help that they need. And we can find those opportunities. The last one is visitation. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Uh, this is a, a, little, a little more difficult. We have some people that I've recently connected with that I think that can help us with this better. And uh, they connect us to those programs. And it was you that had made the those connections. Uh, who is it that was telling me they made some connections with the people in prison and even got as far as you had some permit or something like that? Somebody knocked over the scooter, just push it back in. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And so um, how many of you would like to go visit prisoners if possible? Some of my greatest moments have been going in to prison. I remember one time I was in the Philippines. Once again, this is foreign missions, which I do all the time. But I want to do it here. One time I was in the Philippines and I got to share, I don't know if you were with us, I got to share at a youth, a juvenile prison. 
It was a really cool experience because I'm like the neat, white, clean guy, you know, and then they're looking at me like, what do you know about our lives? I mean, these are like criminals. And I shared my testimony about my drug dealing days when I was a thief on the streets and the gang and everything. And they were like, but look at you. You just look like so clean and so holy. And so, yeah, looks can be deceiving. The past is different. And it, then I had their attention because they found out, well, you're no different than we are. And I had a great time of prayer with them. Many of those young kids prayed for Jesus to come into their heart. So those are the opportunities we have to do that. Amen? So these are the five categories. Uh, sustenance, hospitality, clothing, consolation, visitation. Uh, pay close attention to scheduling what we're going to do. You will hear as I, I, I've just felt the need to talk about this tonight to let you all know that what we're going to be doing and uh, next week we'll continue with the regular educational messages and teachings. But I want us to pray specifically for, uh, for this tonight. Why don't we stand, stand up if you don't mind as we close.